What's the most creative story you can think of? How about teaching your dog to talk by using buttons during the pandemic and then writing a book about how it changed your life? Today's guest, believe it or not, did just that, and I can't wait to share her story with you. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, and multi-passionate creative. This show sits at the intersection of creativity, mental health, self-development, and spirituality, and it's meant to give you tools to love, trust, and know yourself enough to claim your right to creativity and pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. Today's guest is Alexis Devine. She's an artist, author, and internet sensation. Alexis has a viral TikTok page, at What About Bunny, which highlights her dog, Bunny, a sheepadoodle who can communicate through pressing buttons. Each button has a meaning, and she places her paw on the various buttons to communicate with Alexis and her partner, Johnny. I wanted to have Alexis on the show because, frankly, this is one of the most creative stories I have ever heard. Alexis has taught Bunny to memorize over 100 English language words through the system. And frankly, it just is wild that this is true. And it's so incredible to watch. Through loving and teaching Bunny, Alexis has had many revelations about herself, her life, and her creativity. And she tells the story in her new book, I Am Bunny. It touches on how Alexis trained Bunny, as well as how the process of doing that and loving Bunny has revealed a path to self-acceptance, self-love, and self-trust. From today's chat, you'll learn how to prepare yourself for the unexpected through your creative journey, how to cultivate patience during the creative process, how to become a better listener, how your creative projects and creations can teach you about yourself, and yes, we will go into how you too can start to teach your dog to communicate through this system and much more. Okay, now here she is, Alexis Devine. Alexis, first of all, so excited and thrilled to have you on the show today. I think I literally wrote to your publicist, that's about the most creative person I've ever heard of. I'd love to have her on my show, Unleash Your Inner Creative. So thank you so much for being here. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. So we're going to get into how you taught your dog to talk slash communicate. But before we get into that, I know you are an artist through and through. And I would love to talk a little bit about your life pre-Bunny and your life as a visual artist. Can you tell me about what you did before this? I'm just so curious how it led in. Oh, there is absolutely no connection. <laughs> I mean, what I was doing then and what I'm doing now are both creative, but in terms of like, how did one blend smoothly into the other? No, the pandemic shut everything down. But let me take a step back. I've always been an artist. I've always been a visual artist and I've sampled many different forms of visual art over the years and never thought that I would be able to make anything of it professionally. So I just sort of dabbled here and there, just sort of like followed my interests in the moment. And about 10 years ago, I started working with metal. I'd worked with metal before, like soldering and like fine chain work and setting stones, but I wanted to do something bigger. I think because I was at a point in my life where I was feeling sort of extremely vulnerable and I needed something that felt protective. And so I started making chain mail and scale mail and... Initially, I wasn't so sure how I felt about it because I'd only ever seen chain mail and scale mail in sort of like LARP and cosplay and like it has this sort of medieval feel, right? Just clarify, is scale mail very similar to chain mail? Yeah. So you're still using rings to connect things into like a sheet, 
but you're also fastening these metal scales. They look just like dragon scales. Oh, cool. Uh, so it, it all lays in this beautiful pattern and sort of feels like snake skin or dragon skin. Oh, cool. You were playing around with these different kinds of things, almost like it was like a metaphor for kind of what you wanted internally. Absolutely. And the process itself was very cathartic to me. There was a rhythm, a repetition. It was sort of like knitting, but harder on your joints. I would do this for like hours and hours in the day. And I started making these pieces of wearable art that felt more sort of high fashion and future fashion than they did LARP cosplay medieval. And uh, some of my friends saw them and they were like, wow, these are incredible. So I started making more and you know, my designs iterated, they became really clean, they became really unique, and I really developed a style of my own. And then people started wanting them and people started wanting to shoot with them. So I started doing tons of photo shoots, ended up on New York Fashion Week a couple of years in a row. And then I developed a smaller like Pret-a-Porter line so that people didn't have to spend like hundreds and thousands of dollars to get a piece from me. And those were equally as punchy and powerful, but in a much smaller package, like so I'd have little necklaces that said, boy, bye, or fuck off, or eat shit, just things that are like empowering and strong. And then I'd have these massive armor pieces that felt like a weighted blanket for your soul. Mm. And my motto was armor for those that dream of vulnerability. After I figured out why I was doing this and why it was so powerful to me and why I was loving it, that became my motto. And so I did that for uh, many years. You know, I felt quite successful at it. I was doing something really creative, really unique. I hadn't seen anything like it before. And I was getting to collaborate with these amazing artists that I respected, photographers and makeup artists. And it was beautiful. It was a great, it was a great life. And I was being sold in boutiques around the country. And then the pandemic hit. And all of a sudden, photo shoots weren't happening. Fashion shows weren't happening. All the boutiques literally shuttered. They were boarded up. As we all know, that was a, a delicate and trying time for many people. And so I had to shift. And it was just a little bit before that that I had brought home this tiny, fluffy, black and white sheepadoodle whom I had named Bunny. And I had known from months before I brought her home that I wanted to explore as many avenues of communication as possible with the end goal of having this really, really beautiful connected relationship. And so when she came home, I had an outside button waiting by the door. It was this little button that you could press record and I would set outside on it. Every time we would go outside, I would press the button and she would hear the word outside. And then I would say the word outside and then we would go outside and we'd have a little outside party. I'd say the word a bunch of times. And this went on for about a month until one day, my partner and I were sitting at the table watching Netflix and Bunny was over by the door where the button had been positioned. And she was just standing there sort of like looking at us and then looking down at the button, looking back up at us. And that happened, you know, four or five times. I was sort of watching her out of the corner of my eye. And then she lifted her paw, turned and looked at us and smashed the outside button of her own accord. I just lost my mind. I screamed <laughs> and was like, oh my God, yay. And we went outside and we had an outside party. And it was sort of game on from that point in time. I was like, if she can learn one button, she can learn two. If she can learn two. Why not five? Why not 50? And so I really started to focus my attention on my relationship with Bunny and on learning to communicate in as many ways as possible with her. And it was the pandemic and the internet really needed some positive content. And this was very positive content. And so I think 
she went viral for a number of reasons. One, she's just insanely cute, right? Two, it was really interesting to see a dog communicating using English words. And three, people just really, really needed to forget that there was some very scary stuff happening in the world at that time. Wow. Okay, so much to break down from your story. First of all, you had an amazing career in art. Like this is wild to me because like if someone would have told you when you were in this part of your life that months later you would be famous on the internet for teaching your dog to talk, maybe you would have known. But like to me, that just instills so much optimism because you never know what kind of wild turn your life could take in a beautiful direction. Absolutely. And I mean, the reverse is true too, right? You never know when it could take a turn for the less beautiful direction. And I am very cognizant of that, that anything could happen at any time. And so I'm the type of person that really tries to take advantage of whatever my current special interest or focus is. I try to make the most of it, uh, which I did with my wearable art. It's interesting because as I was coming to the end of that journey, I started to feel like I wonder if my brain is going to take me in another direction soon. Like, I wonder Mm. if it's time for me to shift. And I had no idea what that shift could be, but I could feel something was starting to turn. You know, the world changed very quickly and my focus changed very quickly as well. And it felt right at that time. You know, nobody could have told me 10 years ago that this is what I would be doing in 10 years and have me believe it. I mean, maybe stranger things have happened, but yeah, it was not something that I had planned on obviously or expected to happen. Yeah. And that's something we talk about on the show a lot, because I think it's hard when you have your whole identity wrapped up in one thing to then make this shift to a completely different genre of your creativity. Like, was there any grief in letting go of that pure artist part of your life? Or did you just feel excited to make this move into Bunny World? I think it was less grief and more just uncertainty, because I've made some pretty dramatic changes like this in the past. And the people around me are always like, oh no, you need to be prepared. Like don't quit a job unless you have another job, right? Right. That kind of thing. And that's just not how my life has ever worked. I'm always like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. I don't care. I gotta be done now and then move on to the next thing. I think there was uncertainty and maybe just a tad bit of grief, just a touch of grief, but I felt like I was moving into something so powerful and so beautiful that it was hard to stay in that grief for any period of time. And that chunk of my life is so well documented. And I made so many beautiful friendships and connections through that time. It's still a part of who I am. I don't feel like I just stopped and then we're done with it. I feel like it still exists. And I was able, thankfully, to bring a part of that into my book, which I feel very, very grateful for. Yes. I mean, there's art all over your book. Is it over a hundred pictures in there of you and Bunny? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Like it's visually stunning. Even like the start of every chapter, there's so much color and I love the lettering in it, the branding of it. It's all beautiful. So, okay, getting into I Am Bunny a little bit. Before we do, you said like, oh, I got this outside button. Like that's just like a normal thing to have. Like where did you go? How did you create it? Like how did you start cultivating these buttons? Several months before Bunny came home, I had come across Christina Hunger online, and she is a speech-language pathologist. She taught her own dog, Stella, how to communicate using AAC, which is Augmentative and Alternative Communication. She was using these recordable buttons, 
And so I just got a set of the recordable buttons and, you know, I had no business teaching my dog how to talk. I hadn't had a dog since childhood. I wasn't a dog trainer. I wasn't a speech language pathologist or a scientist, but I have been known to be frustratingly tenacious. (laughs) If I say I'm going to do something, it's probably going to happen. I think had it not been for Bunny's willingness to participate in my silly games, maybe we wouldn't be where we are today. But I lucked out and she did. She did want to play the game because it really is. It's been a two-way conversation from day one, not just me teaching her here's an English word to learn, but her learning to press the button for an English word and me learning everything I possibly could about canine behavior and intrinsic canine communications and all of the things that affect behavior. Yeah. And so how did you cultivate patience during this process? Because I think something that stops so many of us from continuing with the creative process, whatever it is, is that moment in between having the brilliant idea and putting it out into the world or completing it. How did you cultivate patience between like, oh my gosh, there's all these buttons that I want to show Bunny, but also she's a dog and I need to figure out how to teach a dog how to press the button and communicate? Well, I think because I didn't have any preconceived expectations of success, I was less worried about let's get from A to Q. I was more interested in can we get to A? And if we can, we'll take it one step at a time. Whereas I didn't have this like goal in mind. Okay, she's got to have 100 buttons within a year and a half. Otherwise, I'm a failure because this really hadn't been done a lot, right? So I was able to take my time without having to feel that sort of pressure on myself. Yeah. and. How quickly did she start learning with these different buttons? She got the one for outside. And then how much time would it take between each button for her to get another? She sped up after that. So the first button took like around a month. And then after that, the time between which I would place the button on the floor and she would press it and try and get an understanding of what it meant became shorter and shorter with each subsequent button. I think because she's starting to understand the game, right? Like each one of these means something. Like I can use these to have my needs met or, you know, request something or narrate something about the world we live in. And I think because she is a particularly sensitive and anxious dog, her need to be understood and to understand the things going on around her was a lot higher than perhaps for example, my other dog, Otter, who is just like this goofy party dude. (laughs) Yeah, I was wondering about Otter because I've been following along on socials. Does Otter talk on the buttons or no? He uses the buttons only for evil. So (laughs) he, he will, if Bunny has a toy or like a chew that he wants, he'll go over to the board earnestly and like press outside and beach a bunch of times and look at me with like doe eyes and then he'll run to the door And Bunny will be like, oh, cool, we're going outside. She'll drop her toy, and then he'll run back and steal it. He only uses the buttons for evil. Sometimes he'll try and and communicate something with sincerity, but it usually devolves into chaos. So he'll start with like, hi, mom. And then he'll just be like, like slamming the buttons, grabbing the tiles with his teeth and shaking them around. He's just got like no impulse control whatsoever, Uh, but he does his best. And he is such a sweet, good-natured like happy-hearted guy. He's always smiling. He's just wonderful. And I think because perhaps he doesn't have the same level of anxiety as Bunny, it's not as important to him to feel understood and to understand everything that's going on around him. He can roll with the punches much more easily than Bunny can or than I can. 
That's so fascinating because there's so many great parts of the book where you say, talk about a lesson you've learned from Bunny and how it applies to your life. And I'm just thinking like I also have anxiety. I know that you also relate and like Bunny has taught you a ton about your mental health. Do you think that's true with humans too? Like do anxious people have a greater desire to be understood? I'm not sure if it's to be understood or to be in control, to have more control. I know that when I'm feeling particularly anxious, things feel like they could spiral at any second, right? Which is why like maladaptive coping mechanisms come into play, like drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, other sorts of addictions, right? You can't deal with the out of control spiral. So you focus that energy into something that you can control that allows you to disengage from the madness of it all. Something like that. I'm sure my therapist would say, no, that's not exactly it, but that's what it feels like to me. So I think a need to feel in control. And with that control comes a level of understanding that I don't think she could have had otherwise. I mean, this is one of my favorite quotes from the book that you say, what I found was that even without being reinforced with treats, the buttons were their own reward for Bunny. With this type of training, her primary reinforcer had become being understood. And I just thought that was so profound because outside of even any talk about anxiety, isn't that what like all beings want is someone to say, I see you. Absolutely. Yeah. It was just so profound. I loved it. Even more so for artists, right? Like we don't always know as artists what our art means until we're able to sit with it and reflect upon it. But it's all a method of trying to be understood and to create order out of madness, right? There is always some method to it. It's always saying something, even if we don't know at that time what it is. So I think for artists in particular, maybe we're a bit more sensitive than the rest of the world that need to be understood and having an outlet to create something that might help the world at large understand us or us understand the world at large is very important. How has teaching Bunny all of these things and then sharing it with the world been that for you? What has it taught you about yourself as a creative and an artist? The process of teaching Bunny how to communicate with buttons is very creative to me because there weren't any rules. There wasn't like a a guidebook, you know, there wasn't anything pedagogical that I could follow in terms of learning how to do this. So I had to just figure it out. I had to think really hard about what she might be interested in communicating and then give her a word for it. Sometimes the words that I give her, she uses in ways that don't have the same meaning. For example, the word tug, I put that there that so she could request a tug toy or a game of tug, right? She has never once used it in that regard. <laughs> she uses it to mean a back and forth. She uses it to refer to waves, to refer to the tide coming in and going out to refer to a conversation. She used sound tug, the words going back and forth. So she can use these words in ways that I never could have comprehended. And it takes a fair amount of creativity to get to the bottom of what she's trying to say sometimes. And even then, I'm not 100% sure. So there is quite a bit of creativity in that process. Outside of being a creative, the biggest through line in the book is empathy, right? Not just empathy for the captive animals we live with, but empathy for other humans. And most importantly, I suppose, empathy for oneself, right? Because I put so much on myself and I'm guilty about everything always. And I never feel like I'm doing enough. 
And that is such a self-defeating philosophy to hold. But learning how to love and work with and be with and communicate and connect with Bunny has taught me that I should show myself those same graces. I'm so kind and so patient with her whilst never having been that way with myself. It's affected my relationship with myself tremendously in that regard, but it's also affected the way I communicate with other humans. And of course, the way I communicate with other non-humans, you know, giving space, taking time, being kind and really trying to listen to the whole being and not just what the words are saying, because there's so much we say without words and you really have to dig a little bit deeper to get to the bottom of what a person is meaning or what an animal is trying to communicate. That's so true because recently I visited my family in Sicily. I have a lot of cousins over there. And unfortunately, I don't speak fluent Italian. And what I love about a language barrier, which ultimately like not being able to speak dog is basically a language barrier. But what I love about it is you can't hide who you really are. So words don't get in the way of your essence. And I think that's such a beautiful thing that you just pointed out, that when we actually tune deeper into someone beyond words, we really see the depth of who they are. And I mean, it's great that you've given Bunny something to help her communicate, but you already knew who she was. And then it was just tuning into that even more deeply. Yeah, absolutely. Finding as many ways in which to communicate as possible means that there are no limits to how much we can communicate. Not to mention that it would be incredibly anthropocentric for me to just say, hey, dog, use English or else, Yeah. right? But the more she did, the more she sort of went out of her way to use these buttons, the more inspired I was to learn as much as I possibly could about her intrinsic communications. And the more motivated I was to choose words, not for my sake, but for her sake, right? Like if she's barking every day at the great blue heron outside, well, I need to give her bird versus cupcake. Like, why would she ever use that word? You know, if someone was making a board for me and they put the word moist on it, I would never use it. Yes. <laughs> right? I was very intentional to choose words that were salient to her experience in the world or that I thought were. Yeah. As we know, it's very hard to know how another creature experiences the world, but I spent a lot of time observing her. So the words that I chose after a point in time were all based on the things that I saw in her behavior that she might be interested in communicating about. Do you have any advice for someone who's listening right now and is like, wow, this is amazing. I would love to try it with my dog. Like, where is the first place that they should start? Listening to your dog. Become an active listener to your dog. Because I think so much of the time, it's really easy for us to fall into this trap of we're hanging out with this fluffy potato and, you know, they come up on the couch and they cuddle with us and I give them food, but you don't really take the time to truly get to know them or to truly invest yourself in their interests, which is hard, obviously, because they don't speak English, right? But if you spend a little bit of time just observing your dog, watching what they're looking at, what they notice in the outside world, you know, stop and let them sniff on walks. What are they attracted to? Are they attracted to the fire hydrants? Are they attracted to a specific type of tree? Do they really want to play with huge dogs and, and really want to avoid little dogs? If you start paying attention, that'll give you a sense of what they might want to communicate about. And once you have that sense, then you can start choosing words and you want to choose words that are really easy to model at first. Outside is super easy to model because most dogs enjoy going outside. Most dogs 
have to go outside so that they can do their business. And it usually happens many, many times a day, right? So if you put an outside button by the door, you can say the word and model the button every time you're going outside. Play is another one. A lot of dogs are really motivated by play. So if you give them a play button, you press the button, you say the word play, and then you start playing with them for a short period of time, and then you're done, and then you do it again. So those are a couple of activities that you can do with your dog that would be pretty easy to model, and you'd have multiple opportunities a day. Working on a targeting behavior, whether your dog wants to use their paw or their nose, that's up to them. But working on a nose to hand target or a nose to button target or, you know, like a shake behavior or just a paw behavior, paw target, those activities will help your learner be more likely to offer that behavior with the button in the future. So those are great starting places. And did I see on your TikTok, you either partner with or you sell these mats now where you can put the buttons down, right? I'm a co-founder of Fluent Pet. That's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? So in case people are interested in buying it? Yeah. So Fluent Pet is a company that uh, makes and sells the hex tiles that you've seen in my social media posts and the small buttons that you can fit into the hex tiles. You get six buttons per hex tile and they're organized based on the Fitzgerald key, which was created by Edith Fitzgerald in the early 1900s. She was a deaf woman who wanted to create a system to teach deaf children grammar and by sort of compartmentalizing the words, right? So each tile with the buttons contains a different part of a sentence, right? So you've got your people, your places, your actions, your feelings. And that way, instead of having like a massive grid of buttons and non-human having to memorize, okay, if I go four over and three down, that's where the mom button lives, they can compartmentalize into these six buttons in this off gray tile right here. The middle one is mom. It's much easier for them to sort of with muscle memory, learn the placement of the buttons and it becomes rather automatic after a period of time. Wow. That's so brilliant. Okay. Everybody go get that for your puppy. (laughs) Getting back to the book. I know every person I've ever had on this show who talks about writing a book talks about how basically the process of writing a book tortured them. (laughs) And I want to see for you, was that the case for you? Like, what was the actual writing process like? What did it bring up for you? So I never in my life have had the thought, oh, maybe I'll write a book one day. Or like, I should write a book. But I had a publisher reach out several years ago, and I took a meeting with them. And they were interested in having me write something pretty pedagogical that would sort of like step by step, here is how you teach the buttons. And I knew almost instantaneously that's not what I was interested in because there are so many ways to go about this that are as unique as the relationship that an individual human has with an individual non-human, right? There's a million ways to do it. So I didn't think that that would be fair because one method isn't going to work for everyone. Plus, I'm an artist. So I wanted to describe my experiences and my history and what I've learned and sort of build this wave of emotion, which is what life has felt like to me. So I got a literary agent and they were like, great, now we write a book. And I said, okay, how do you write a book? I don't know how to write a book. And they're like, hmm, okay, well, uh, how about just write one anecdote, a couple pages? I was like, okay. So I went and I, I wrote an anecdote and I brought it back to them and they were like, great, love it. Do it a hundred more times. I was like, oh, 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, cool. I see. Right, 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 right. And that was daunting, but it also it made it feel sort of more approachable because, you know, individual anecdotes are, you know, that's easier than writing, okay, here's like 60,000 words. Yeah. It's kind of like the buttons. One at a time. One step at a time. That's very nice. Yes, very nice. You know, it's hard. It's hard to write a book. I didn't know what direction to go or what the through line was or apparently my grammar sucks. So like I'm a great storyteller, but your grammar sucks. So, you know, there were a lot of challenges along the way, but it came together really beautifully. And once I started working with my editor, I really started to feel the connectedness of the stories I was telling of the anecdotes. And it started to make a lot more sense to me. From the beginning, I was like, hey, can we like include a hundred full color photographs? And they were like, um, what? <laughs> and they said yes, remarkably. Uh, so yeah, I started shooting and continued writing. And before I knew it, there was a book. And I don't think it's fully sunk in yet, to be perfectly honest. Oh my gosh. Wait, like how does it feel putting your book baby out into the world? I mean, you've been on your own socials, but this is fully you stepping out. Like you've got Bunny there, but this is your story. What was that like? Oh, it felt great. Yeah? As I say in the memoir, I have been in therapy for a million years. And so I'm very familiar with talking about trauma, but I'm not familiar with talking about trauma to millions of people. And there is so much information in the book that I never share on socials at all. So I think it's going to be an interesting ride for a lot of my followers. I hope they love it. Some parts are very vulnerable. I feel really good getting it out there. In fact, when I finished the manuscript, my first thought was, hmm, I want to write another one that's truthier, right? That's like more vulnerable. Like I want to go deeper into that. That felt really good. It was cathartic. And of course, you know, I know that all of the feedback can't be positive. That just doesn't exist in humanity. But I'm hoping that the majority of it is because I really would enjoy writing some more really relatable and really real content. I think the world needs that. What was the most vulnerable thing you revealed in the book? And did you second guess it at all or did it feel okay? Writing about the sexual assault when I was in kindergarten was challenging. I put it in and took it out several times. I talked to my therapist about it and she was like, I think you should do it. You do it. And I did it and it's out there. And I feel, I mean, I feel so much less ick about that experience just to having it floating around in the world than I did having it sitting within me. Do you know what I mean? I do know exactly what you mean. And thank you for sharing that because sometimes when you don't share those kind of things, like on the one hand, it's like, Part of you wants to protect your younger self and your little self, but then there's part of you that's like, am I holding this back because I'm holding guilt over this and shame over it? And that's what I think you release when you put something like that out into the world. It's like, okay, this story no longer has power over me because I know in my deepest soul, it was not my fault and I had nothing to do with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Had I not included that piece it may not have made sense to readers why later in life I struggled with other things. Right. It was a foundation. It was a, yeah, exactly. It was a foundational event. That's why I said I want to write a truthier book because there have been so many other experiences that I could have put in there, but I did want to find a balance between 
okay, here's my chaos and here's uh, this lovely story about the connection I have with my dog, right? Yeah. I think there has to be that balance there. I mean, it was also amazing because you, as much as you shared these deep, vulnerable moments, you also kept it very light at times. Like one of my favorite parts of the book is when you talked about poop. I'm sorry. It was just yeah. so funny that Bunny started smelling your partner's shits. Yes. <laughs> and then telling on him and then asking you where you go to the bathroom and then being like, oh, good, I'm going to log this one away for when mom goes to the bathroom and then, you know, calling you out. Yeah. Tell me how you struck the balance between those stories, because it was amazing. I think I really saw this as a full value book from the beginning. And in order to get to that place, there were certain emotional points that I wanted to hit. Like I, I wanted people maybe to cry, right? I wanted people to go, oh, I wanted people to laugh. And I wanted people to challenge maybe some of the assumptions they've had about what it means to be connected to a non-human animal. And then I wanted to include visual art. And I think part of that is due to my insane drive for novelty. Like I get bored so quickly. I was like, if I, if I am reading a book, I don't need a picture book, but <laughs> pictures make it so much more captivating and engaging and interesting. And I wanted the chapters to be short and digestible so that you could read something and think about it and process and then maybe shake off whatever residual feeling, move on to the next thing and experience something totally fresh. Yeah. And you achieve that. I'm also thinking back to that original it was a publisher that reached out to you that wanted you to do the ABCD book. That's the way I'm phrasing it. But it's hard to say no to things, right? It can be very difficult. I know a lot of people in my community reach out and, and say they have a hard time, especially when you've been in that feast or famine mentality in your past, saying no to something that could be a great opportunity, but doesn't feel resonant in your soul. What's your advice for somebody who's been approached with a similar type of situation for them, whatever it may be? They've gotten their version of the how to help your dog talk book. How can they empower themselves to say no and trust that something else will come for them? Get a reactive dog. <laughs> that is my advice. No, seriously, that's one of the greatest lessons that, uh, that Bunny has taught me is that she is very clear. Yes and no are very clear. And watching her do that and learning how she does that was really powerful to me because in one sense, not only did I learn, oh, well, she can do it, I can do it. But in another sense, like people that couldn't read her body language, that didn't understand her behavior, I had to be her advocate. So I had to practice saying no a lot. Can I pet your dog? No. Uh, someone comes to grab her face. Please step back. She doesn't like that. Uh, somebody's like, can my dog say hello? No, thank you. My dog doesn't like other dogs that she doesn't know. I got a lot of practice doing that. And, um, you know, I think one of the other things that I learned is kind of moving in the direction of like, not only this lesson of self-advocacy, but like eliminating this guilt. Yes. Is maybe like societally imposed. Maybe it's imposed by your parents, which is also, you know, part of society. Maybe it's like self-imposed for whatever reason, but we do the best we can. And things happen to us. We make things happen. But holding guilt around things is not a valuable way to move through the world. And I think a lot of humans that have reactive dogs feel a tremendous amount of shame about their dog's behavior. And I did it first because I didn't expect it. I thought, 
you get this fluffy little potato and it doesn't have any trauma and you do everything right. And then it becomes this great dog, right? This is before I knew anything. And now, obviously, I know that she has her own learning history. She has her own genetic makeup that contributes to that. There's a whole environment around her that's contributing to that. And then, then there's herself. Like, is she, is she feeling physiologically unwell? All of those things are going to impact behavior. Just like for me, which I hadn't ever thought twice about. I was just like, I'm just me and I'm guilty because I like made so many mistakes and bleh. So learning to love her unconditionally and learning to help her walk through the world with grace and ease made it a lot easier for me to say no to things that wouldn't lead me to walk through the world with grace. Does that make sense? That was yeah. a, that was sort of tangential. No, but. it makes total sense. She was literally the perfect mirror for you. Sometimes we can't give ourselves the grace or even like we can't do for ourselves what we can do for people or beings we love. And Bunny yes. was a mirror for you. I mean, you bring that up so many times, like how she taught you to set boundaries. She taught you to trust your body. That's something I'm really curious to talk with you about. Tell me what Bunny has taught you about trusting your body. I think in a lot of ways, non-humans obey their bodies, right? And I think in so many ways, humans don't. Like, I am exhausted, but I have to do this, 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 and this. So I'm going to do those things. And then as a result, I can't function the next day, right? If Bunny isn't feeling well, she will say, no, I would not like to go on a walk today, please. I would like to rest. And therefore, the next day, she can go on a walk because she hasn't run herself completely ragged. This is a lesson I'm still learning because I I am constantly like, to-do list is 5 million things long. But I am not only better at saying no, but I'm better at like consolidating, like making long tasks more efficient or offloading tasks to people who are willing to help me or asking for help even, you know, that's something that I am very, historically, I'm very, very bad at. I don't like, I don't like asking for help. I don't like seeming vulnerable. Welcome to my book of vulnerability. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was going to say, you're really taking the armor off now. (laughs) Yeah, I made it. I put it on and now we're taking it off. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So just listening, listening to my body and letting my physiology guide some of my movements and some of my decisions in the same way that I watch Bunny do. Even just things like, you know, I think you talked about in the book, like shaking it off. Like that's oh, yeah. such a powerful technique to releasing either momentary stress or even long-term trauma, like literally letting it leave your body. Dogs just do that naturally. We always see them shiver. We see them shake. I mean, it really is amazing what a perfect mirror they are for us. Yeah. And I think so much so in Bunny's case, like, you know, she's anxious and sensitive and worried and like chronically ill. Like she, she, I am Bunny. I am Bunny. Like we are the same. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's been so powerful to care for her with such empathy because I see so much of myself in her that caring for that inner child or whatever, right? Yeah. She's truly your dogter. My dogter. <laughs> Somebody on social media today was like, ugh, why do you have her call you mom? That's so weird. And I was like, ma'am, that 36-hour labor is something I will never forget. So you can just shove it. <laughs> I remember the day I birthed you, bunny. <laughs> exactly. Talking about something that's the same, I love that you pointed out 
the similarities between science and art. This is from the book. At their core, art and science are rooted in a similar place. Curiosity guided by a deep longing to understand both ourselves and our environment in a more profound way and to reveal the unknown. Yes, yes, yes. I want to put 15 gold stars by this. Why do you think for so long society, people, the world has tried to convince artists and scientists that we are not intrinsically linked? Because the methods are so different. Because science is very formulaic. I mean, art can be too, but science is very formulaic. Like you start from a place of neutrality and then you work at eliminating these options and these options. And then you work at like replicating these options. It's just very, very, very formulaic. And art is much more creative. Like I think as an artist, I do not start from a place of neutrality. I start from a place of, I don't even know what I feel, but it needs to come out of me. So I'm going to make something and then I will process it when I can look at this piece of art I've created or someone else can look at it and help me process. Right. I, I found that with a lot of my pieces that somebody else will see it and be like, oh my God, this speaks to me in this way, or this made me feel this way. And then I'm like, oh, like in a ball crying because they've hit it exactly on the head what I couldn't pinpoint. So I think the methods of sort of getting to the bottom of that curiosity or the end of that curiosity are very different, even though I think the drive is quite similar. Yeah. I just think we have a similar heartbeat and I was so happy that you pointed that out. It's really beautiful. And speaking of science, okay, Bunny is part of a research study. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about this? I'm fascinated. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the largest citizen science canine cognition study ever attempted. There are over a thousand active participants, and I think there are close to 10,000 enrolled participants. Federico Rosano, who is the head of the Comparative Cognition Lab at UCSD, is running the study. And we've got a couple of papers under peer review right now, and uh, we've got a whole lot of data. The new system that Fluent Pet is putting out is called the Connected System. So each button is Bluetooth enabled, and the sound goes through a centralized speaker, and every button press is recorded through the app and sent directly to the researchers so they can track all of the patterns, and you can receive a text from your pet anytime they press a button. That's so cute. Mm-hmm. It's so cute unless you are not home and your dog presses go poop. Not cute. Not cute. Not cute. Not ideal. But hey, at least you know. <laughs> at least it's not a shock. Exactly. You're prepared. Yeah. And this other part that I just thought was so incredible, like circling back to your bunny being a mirror and learning, you discovered you were autistic through bunny. Yeah. As I really started to dive into behavior and cognition and training and sort of all of these aspects surrounding what I was doing with Bunny, I started learning about autism because AAC has been used a lot with nonverbal autistic people. So I would just go down these wormholes, learn what I could about AAC, learn what I could about speech language pathology. And I came across this article that said something like, oh, I forget the exact number. I think it was like 20% of female autists have chronic eating disorders. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. And that took me down another wormhole. And then I started learning about how autism presents so much differently in women than it does in men, which is why women are often misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, or diagnosed late in life. And in my research, I 
connected with just about everything I was reading. I reached out to a therapist and took a bunch of tests and got a diagnosis, which I was not surprised by. It gave me clarity. It was as if I had felt so alien for so many years and looking at my life through this new lens of autism allowed me to reframe all of these experiences in a way which allowed me to feel less guilty and less sort of self-punitive. Well, you know, one of the tenets of the show is help people love, trust, and know themselves enough to pursue whatever is on their heart and claim creativity. How did it help you feel more self-love and self-compassion? In so many ways. I think one of the biggest is that I have a tendency to become incredibly hyper-focused, like to the exclusion of almost everything else. And now I allow myself to hyper-focus because it feels like one of my superpowers and not like a weakness, right? It's not that I'm ignoring everything else. It's that I have this unique ability to pursue something at max capacity for long periods of time and learn about it quite quickly and make the most of it quite quickly. And so I do. Whereas before I would feel really guilty for not going to the bar with a friend, but so many things, not doing anything really other than my hyper-focus. As long as I'm eating and peeing, I'm good. If I forget to do those things, then, you know, then we take a breath and reevaluate. But it really has felt like such a relief to understand some of my life through a behavioral lens of autism. It's brought clarity and I feel much kinder to myself now. It's also wildly improved my relationship with my mother, who also learned that she is autistic shortly after I did. So we've been able to reframe so many of our joint experiences and our joint miscommunications and so many of the challenges we've had in our relationship have just sort of melted away having this new framework to look at things through. Wow, that is so beautiful. Okay, well, our time has flown by. I just have one final question for you and the puppies, I guess, <laughs> since they're there. I often ask people like if they could talk to their younger self what they would say. But I'm kind of curious if you and the version of you that put that first button down, we're standing in the same room and looking at each other. What do you think she would say to you today and why? That is a great question. I think she would say, I am really fucking proud of you. You're doing good things. And I think you're exactly where you need to be. See, I'm getting choked up talking to my younger self. It's hard. It is hard. Yeah, I think she would be really proud of me. And what would you say to her and why? I would say, hang on, you're in for a wild ride. <laughs> you certainly are, younger Alexis. And oh my gosh, what an amazing, amazing journey you've had. This book is absolutely beautiful. To anyone listening, go get a copy. You're going to learn about your dog, but more importantly, you're going to learn about life and being a human. It was just such a beautiful book. It's beautiful in the words and also in the 100 pictures, you were right to fight for that. I'm just so grateful you've continued to share your creativity with the world. And I really can't wait to see what you'll come up with next. Thank you so much. This has been such a delight to chat with you. I really appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate yours. Thanks, Alexis. 
Thanks for listening. And thanks to my guest, Alexis Devine. For more info on Alexis, follow her and Bunny at What About Bunny and find a copy of her book, I Am Bunny, How a Talking Dog Taught Me Everything I Need to Know About Being Human. It's out now and you can get it wherever good books are found. Thanks to Rachel Fulton for helping me edit and associate produce this episode. Follow her at Rachel M. Fulton. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag the guests at what about bunny so they can share as well. My wish for you this week is that you ask yourself if Alexis was literally able to teach her dog to communicate, what could be true for you? What thought or curiosity could you satisfy and make into an entire career and soul exploration? The world has so much possibility in it and sky's really the limit, babes. If a dog can talk, you can do anything. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.